And I know this is not what most people want to hear because what typically sells books or podcasts or TVs or movies is a formula. Mm-hmm. It's like, here's a six part mm-hmm. formula of how to tell a great story or here are the three steps to personal growth. I've had a front row seat to see what change looks like and it's messy and it's not mm-hmm. formulaic, yeah. but yet I know our brain consumes a map and we need three steps. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that they're not important. Mm-hmm. I know they're important for certain elements, but I really think change happens as is as a lifestyle is mm-hmm. when you sit in this overly curated safe experience to where you feel seen deeper known deeper and heard deeper than you ever had in your life mm. and that would be how i would describe connection mm-hmm. but ultimately when you can tell when somebody is lit up having felt truly connected to who they are for maybe the first time but i think the magic happens in the middle mm-hmm. you know so we book in the curriculum but it's this shift of how human beings show up for one another that changes people from the inside out hey everyone i'm kara and i'm caleb and welcome to the kara and caleb show when it comes to life we believe it is so important to ask the right questions but also to learn how to live in the tension and the uncertainty of those questions Yes, when we learn to live in the tension of unanswered questions, we become more resilient, more radiant, and more human. On this podcast, we explore the questions that have shaped and defined the lives of our guests. And then we dive deep into the beauty and the transformational process that occurs as we wait for answers that may or may not come as we expected. So join us as we explore what's possible when we are able to rest in the tension and live the questions of our lives right now. I've got the heart of a Babe, how excited are you about today's guest? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. You know, I am such a fan of Miles Adcox. He's honestly, I I can honestly say that I have not met many men in my life Mm. that I can get around and feel so safe around them and in their presence. But when I met Miles, it wasn't just the feeling of feeling safe that I had with him, but there was such a reverence and an honor that I felt towards him because of the work that he is doing. And I knew um, because of my own path, I knew that for him to enter into the depths that he's entering into and to create such a safe experience that fosters such a, a transformational process for people. I know that it didn't come up without a cost. Yeah, definitely. And this isn't a fad to him. Yeah. You know, this isn't a job to him. When you get around Miles Adcock's transformation, elevating the human experience, it's it's who he is mm-hmm. and is so, so encouraging. And it was such an honor because I've heard so much about him and I've heard you speak over and over <laughs> and over again about onsite, which I'm so excited to go to at some point in time. Um, but it was such an honor just to sit with him and have such a casual but yet profound conversation. Yeah. We were nervous at the beginning. I was so nervous. I've played football in front of 85,000 people. I was genuinely nervous to sit in front of miles. I think one of the coolest things about miles too, is that he has been a pivotal person in so in thousands and thousands and thousands of people's healing journeys. He's been a tool and he is so humble. He's so easy to be around. He's so welcoming. And and like you said, he's so safe. He's so safe. And Mm -hmm. if you don't know, Miles Adcox, he's a speaker, a podcast host, a business leader, and a coach. He is the owner and CEO of Onsite, which is an internationally known emotional wellness lifestyle brand that delivers life-changing personal growth workshops, inspiring content, leadership retreats and emotional treatment. Yeah. Miles' work at Onsite has been featured on 2020, Good Morning America, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Dr. Phil Show, and The Doctors. Yeah. Just Just, casual. Just very casual. (laughs) He's devoted his whole life to living into these three concepts, empathy over action, love over agenda, and grace over advice. Publicly and privately, he is known as one of the most plugged in people on the human condition that there is today. I promise you this conversation with Miles will inspire you to dive deeper into your heart, to ask better questions of yourself and the people around you, and ultimately to just push through and forward on your healing journey. I sincerely hope that this conversation blesses you as much as it did us. I do want to say I've never been to onsite, obviously, but group therapy has played such a pivotal role in my transformation when I walked away from the NFL. 
and my life was just a complete and utter disaster. Mm. Um, and so having the space to feel safe enough to allow myself to begin to systematically work on allowing myself to be truly seen and having a safe space for all of that to come up and then to process and build resilience around that shame, it, it changed my life. And I honestly want to say thank you so much. Though I haven't been to on-site, I know what you're doing for so many people, and I just want to honor you and the work that you're doing, and it's truly remarkable. Thank you. That's mm -hmm. incredibly meaningful. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Miles, we're nervous to be oh, with you. You're yeah, such a big funny. deal. I'm kind of nervous. No, no, no I think it's awesome. I, I contribute different spaces to so much of my transformation, but really what it's been was been an ability to live in the questions. And I begin to realize through counseling and through therapy that it's not about looking for answers as much as it's learning how to ask the right questions. And I've learned how to sit and not knowing the answer and the unpredictability and the uncertainty of not knowing the answers um, in life. And that's where the magic happens. Mm -hmm. What's one question in your life that somebody has asked you or you're asking yourself or a question you're asking yourself now that's challenged you, changed the trajectory of your life or would you say maybe even radically changed your life? Mm -hmm. mm. Great question. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I think it would have to be, and this is a question I ask myself, but also ask a lot of people. And it's a, it's just a reframe that hopefully is a, makes the door wider and creates a bit more of an invitation to the, how are you? Because as you know, the typical answer, I think 90% of the time we say fine, mm -hmm. not to how are you? But uh, the question I prefer is how's your heart? Mm. Yeah, that's good. And I, I don't know where to give the origin, I know it's been around. Mm. I don't know where to give that credit to. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a good friend of mine who's an artist, songwriter here in town, Charlie Worsham. And he and I, when we were communicating, we would always say that to one another. Mm. And so I should I should at least mention his name because he was the one that kind of inspired and activated me to begin to ask that more. And it can be a bit of a risk, you know, depending on what context you're in. Because mm -hmm. people are either going <laughs> to, I make up that you guys that are interested in, we have overlapping passions interested in the same things that you would take to that really well. Yeah. How's your heart? And it's like, let me lean yeah. in. But yeah. in, in, you know, that's yeah. kind of countercultural mm -hmm. to, to the norm. However, I think it's a subtle way of really uh, asking people to reflect. And so when I think of even me and I'm, I'm trained and have done a, a boatload of my own work, when I say, how am I? And begin the process of self-awareness and reflecting mm -hmm. on what I'm doing, I'm human too. And so it's easy for me to just be like, I don't really have time to fully explore that right now. So let me mm -hmm. box it in. But when yeah. I say, how's my heart? I take a beat and I yeah. pause. And so that would, that would be it. I love that too. Because Can I just say that I'm not honestly <laughs> just saying this, but that is my go-to question with most men I meet. Mm. And how's your heart? How's your heart? Come on, yeah. we found it's our honestly common. a go-to question. I'm not just saying that. Hey. Like just the other day, I met a friend in LA for coffee, and the first question: How's your heart, man? I know you mm. got a lot going on. How's your heart? Yeah, and it is. It's such a beautiful, uh, introspective, reflective experience. But I've also experienced asking it in the wrong situation or the wrong dynamics, and they're like, "Yeah, it's pumping. It's it's healthy. Thanks." <laughs> okay, it's there. <laughs> I think it's such a. I mean, it's it's just such a good way to drop someone out of their head and into their to their actual experience. And so often when we ask that question, how are you? My response is here, right? Like it's cognitive and I answer from my head. But when you ask me what's going on in my heart, I'm like, oh, uh -huh. wait, it is the pause button. And it's a, yeah, a dropping in. That's so special. Well, and, uh, and uh, the honest answer, but I wanted to, well, I say honest. I was honest about the question because I wanted to come up with a question that I refer to, but I really like to stay away from questions mm -hmm. as best I can. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love the idea of turning questions into statements, mm. which is, you know, it's a classic kind of therapeutic tool, but used in everyday language. Basically, if I can take a question and turn it into a statement, I'm more likely to invite a processed response instead of a yes or no answer. Because mm. when I ask you a question, it implies that there is an answer, first of all, mm. and it implies that you should know it. Mm. So therefore, we get into the top part, top mm. third of our brain and mm. we need to get it right. Right. At yeah. all costs. Yeah. And so we get into a little bit of survival. But when I say, tell me more about that. Yeah. Say mm -hmm. more about that. Yeah. And typically it's a bit more of an invitation. So I like statements more than questions. But one of my favorite questions is, how's your heart? Mm -hmm. So I'm glad we got that in common. No, mm -hmm. I like that. Um, tell me more about your heart. Ooh, come on. You just did it. Tell, tell me more all about your statement. heart. Yeah. yeah. It's good. How do you, um, I mean, you just said kind of what I was going to ask you. Um, 
how do you find, because I, I find like, if you ask me, how is my heart? And even if I wasn't able to process that, process that with you in the moment and I went home, there takes a level of accountability. There takes a level of like no more living in denial for me to truly ask that question and be open and honest with myself that, hey, how is my heart? For so long, I was not going to allow myself to go there because I just didn't have time for it. And I was afraid if I went there, it was just going to open something up and I didn't know how to shut it down. And how would you say for somebody that is not willing to ask that question, but scared to ask that question, truly ask that question, you know what, how is my heart? What would you say would be the beginning process or the beginning steps for somebody to kind of be like, you know what, I'm going to start activating this process in my life to feel safe enough to actually genuinely ask that question. Does that question make sense? Yeah, and uh, it does. I'm a, I'm a I'm a big believer in 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 a simple statement that is a recovery slogan that's been around in certain circles for a long time, which is what we can't do alone, we can do together. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason I like it so much, and I, and we do a lot of individual work too. We're known for our group work, but we also do individual mm-hmm. intensives, and so I'm, I'm I think it's incredibly appropriate and powerful to do some individual work. But for people who've never had a mirrored experience. Uh, to invite what you described earlier as psychological safety, which is a number one factor for building trust in human beings. We can't really expect that you could go there on your own if you've never had that safely mirrored to you. Mm-hmm. So in other words, someone that could hold space with no agenda to try to change what you're mm-hmm. feeling or to do anything with it or to give you advice on how to get out of it because they're uncomfortable by you owning your pain. Mm-hmm. I would suggest those people are out there and there are way more than I ever imagined that are either naturally wired or had an imprint that gave them permission to have an empathetic disposition towards humanity. Mm. And there are a lot more that have learned it along the way. Mm. It sounds like we share that in terms of having done a lot of our own work. So we, we learned it honest. Mm. There are way more people out there that can hold that space and give you that gift of a mirror. And therefore I think once we've experienced it with another, another, and I would just, that's what got me fascinated because I kind of, grew up in the mental health business in the crisis space, mm. doing crisis interventions and residential rehab prior to getting into what I'm doing now. And I saw some of the most magical things happen. I'll never forget them. In an environment where people are showing up to process their worst. Mm. In other words, they're showing up kind of at what culture would tell us is the, their worst moment in their life. And instead of seeing their worst, when you put people together without the filters, without the protection, you don't see their worst, you see their best. And so Mm -hmm. I saw the best of the best of humanity in the place where you put people on a little confidential island to supposedly deal with their worth. And I Mm -hmm. thought, boy, we got it backwards. Mm -hmm. And so I just got excited about how do you take that gut level grace and accelerate it so that people can go and do that on their own. So Mm -hmm. if I, and that used to be a scary question for me too. And I used to, and even when I got trained and experienced in it, I thought I should be good at it. Mm. But the truth is leaving just me with me, I took the human element out of who I was and thought I could outthink my own process. And I would just be hard as hell on myself. And that was when I had a pretty low shame ceiling. I think a lot of my work, and I know you didn't ask that, I'm probably getting ahead of myself, was processing adversity, stress, trauma, emotional pain, all the things that, that, that human beings deal with. And then 10 years into that work, it was, uh-oh, this didn't really offload my shame. I did all this work, and I've still got a pretty low shame ceiling, mm-hmm. even armed with all these be- beautiful tools. And so that was kind of the next stage two work, was trying to figure out how do I reconcile my shame story and live in a more empathetic disposition. Mm. Mm. That's powerful. So, That's so good. I have no idea if I answered your question. No, you I know yeah, I went on a route. It was good. The mirror, <laughs> like it was good. Yeah, I love that. I feel like um, I'm... I'm in the beginning of that second stage, partially to onsite. Honestly, I, uh, I feel like similarly, I did so much therapy, so much work in my twenties. And then, um, I, I went to England for six months and in the stillness of, of leaving my busy life in LA, I, all of this stuff resurfaced and I felt like I didn't have a new toolkit, right? Like all the shame resurfaced, the things that I had processed for years and done so much work around all came back almost like more intensely. And so I I feel like, um, doing group therapy actually was a huge eye opener on, 
on this shame ceiling that you're talking about. And it's like this new journey that I'm in. And it's really, it's really exciting. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. I think one of my favorite things about the the therapeutic process that gets overlooked because they, a lot of people see it as a byproduct, Mm. which is, and, and by the way, I wasn't necessarily just saying do therapy with another person as Mm -hmm. a way to help get more comfortable with that question because mm. I don't think it has to be in a therapeutic context. Right. I think it can be another safe human being mm-hmm. that I'm encouraging because not yeah. everybody has access or resources right. to get therapy, but you can find another person who can sit with you and hear your story mm-hmm. and, you, and you'll know it when you find them because it'll yeah. feel different than when somebody's trying to change your narrative instead of holding it. Mm-hmm. But one of the most powerful parts is regardless of the therapeutic technique, and there's, there's a lot of them, uh, I, I tend to lean towards the more creative ones and experiential ones, but regardless of your learning style or the therapeutic technique, on the back end of all of them, there usually is this round of something called kind of feedback or what we call mirror moments where mm-hmm. you you do this, what can feel like this sophisticated piece of work to reconcile whatever part of your narrative that you're in. in you often come into it and leave thinking that was the work. Yeah. But ultimately it's when I look at you after that work and say, this is what I saw. This is what I heard. Yeah. This is what I related to. Yeah. And I believe that's when most of our neural nets go zoop mm-hmm. and, and yeah. almost get rewired in that. And it's the part we probably, it's probably the side stage to the main stage of the mm-hmm. work. But to me, it probably is the main stage. Yeah. That's, awesome. that's so good. I also, on, on that note, it was really interesting. My most powerful piece of work, work uh, on site, um, it, it, I was being mirrored by little girl Kara, who was played by one of the members in my group. And I think actually the most powerful thing for me was her feedback at the end because she got so healed. And what was so interesting in that that process for me is sometimes I look at the healing journey and I, I've heard this from people, especially who are skeptical about inner, inner work and inner healing. And they're like, isn't that so selfish just to focus on yourself mm. and, and learn all these things about yourself? And what happened in that room was she got so healed by me doing my work, which was incredibly powerful for me to watch, to think like this, this isn't actually about me. For me to go in and do my inner work affects everyone or it, it bleeds out to everyone around me, which I thought was just so, so special and powerful and was much more impactful for me than just sitting in a therapist's office and, you know, processing some event from my past. Yeah, it's hard to replicate the process you're describing, which is in a sense speaking well not to get overly technical therapeutically but it as the protagonist of that story Mm. in other words you were the 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 hero of that story and then you invited these auxiliary roles which Mm. became the guides Uh, that's always a surprise to to me is that I usually and it's interesting like if you ask people a year two years five years ten years after an experience Mm. like at our workshop or another another experience they're more likely to remember the work that someone else did versus mm-hmm. their own. Wow. That is crazy. Yeah. So good. I have to ask, and forgive me if this is out there, but why is this so important? Like not what you would write on your bio page, but deep down, like why do you wake up and commit a life to helping other people mm-hmm. heal? Like why? Did something happen at some point in time in your life, or was it your own trauma journey where you found a sense of, of freedom and you're like, I'm just going to give it away as much as I can? Yeah. To me, it was more than, I mean, don't get me wrong. I've got a a classic story. I didn't get into the profession by accident. Mm. I didn't choose this way of life, call it a profession or just a passion, a way of life by accident. It got into it through the lens of my own experience and dealt with some adversity and got professional support and community support and ultimately had right people around me at the right time for a lights coming on moment, which was magical and I did catch the passion of that and felt compelled to spread it. Also had smart, thankfully wise people around me that said part of your sustaining it will be to share it. Yeah. Mm. I was like, oh, man, really? Because I want to share it anyway. And I mean, that, <laughs> that's actually part of the gig. So uh, that was helpful. But it, it, to me, it was deeper than that. So I'm glad you asked the question the way you did. It was almost, it wasn't almost, it was just a new language mm. that I felt. I felt that, yeah, I I wasn't one of those that life wasn't quite working and this helped it work. It was more, I wasn't really living and had no roadmap to do so in the way that I believe one could with depth and openness and Mm -hmm. connected. Uh, 
And, and, and then I got that. It's almost like when I first got introduced to it, because uh, part of my original imprint was we just didn't do emotions. We didn't do feelings. No, I love you. No hugs. Not consistently. And it was somewhat emotionally illiterate. And so I didn't quite have language or context for how to navigate intimacy and the difficulties of relationships and life and stress. And when somebody dropped that in and said, oh, yeah, here's these things. They're called emotions and feelings. And here's how you can interact with them, use them identify them, clarify them. And oh, by the way, it's not abnormal. It's actually normal. Mm. I was like, my eyes were like, what? (laughs) So that alone, it's like it gave me a new framework for just a deeper, more richer experience. And I've been on fire about it ever since. Primarily because it was like the the big light switch that came on was, man, we have it wrong. Mm. I don't know why I got lucky enough for God to give me this opening to reconcile part of my story and do it in this context. But this should not be reserved for people Mm. uh, that feel as something's wrong with them. It it is an incredibly helpful tool for everybody. So I became a little bit obsessed with, and now I'm super excited to see that culture is also getting obsessed with it. I mean, the paradigm's starting to shift. More and more people are talking about it. But I came obsessed with like, I feel like if at least this content uh, we're sitting around the tables of the problems we're trying to solve, education, polit- uh, politics, business, faith. Mm. And we got a real good chance of raising our self-awareness mm. and actually staying in the right game and getting out of our corners to solve some of the problems, reaching across the line, party lines and all the belief systems that we have. So it was just, it was just like that. Uh, when I had the inner experience, it exploded into this manifestation of I just wanted to talk to everybody I knew about it. That's awesome. So good. Did did you find that as this on-site um, and all the work that you're doing, as it became bigger, maybe in the early stages, and I could be completely off here, was there like a, a, a really, a, a maybe a self-limiting belief or a narrative that really got exposed in you that you had not yet seen in yourself, but as this like public attention and as people started to really notice um, on site and begin to like really understand what it's doing and the work that you're doing. Was there something in you that began to creep up? You know, like the thought is, you know, we we're talking to Ruthie earlier and she's on stage speaking and people are saying something and she's like, if you only knew, you know, was that, you know, like kind of imposter syndrome? I'm not saying it was that, but I'm just curious if there is something that had maybe creeped up that you had to really grab a hold of. Yeah. I mean, that was certainly part of it at one season mm-hmm. and, and enough but I'll be honest, this new, this season of what you're describing where I went from being what I felt like was an effective resource backstage to, for whatever reason, I've been called a little more out front mm. and I'm starting to embrace it instead of resist it. I resisted it for the first probably two years. It's like, Why? that's not my place. There was part of me that felt I could be more effective mm if I could preserve the very thing that I was inviting everybody else to preserve Mm. and I knew how to do it backstage, Mm. I wasn't as sure how to do it when you're out front Mm -hmm. and you're, so I was applying, uh, basically I was playing it safe. In other words, it's, it's a heck of a lot harder. I've learned that when I was applying life strategies to people who had significant platforms or public professions, and I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of them, then Doing that intellectually from a theoretical place versus, uh uh-oh, it's a Mm -hmm. heck of a lot harder when you have to live into it. Mm. And I think I was always scared that I would become one of the people who got disingenuous or was out of integrity with the message I was trying to deliver. Mm. What I didn't, I failed to realize at the time was that I don't have to be an expert in this to be known in this. And I don't so even good. like experts that much anyway. That's so good. <laughs> that's so good because I feel like that is um, such a, a story that's, I think it's a story that so many people tell themselves that they should listen to. Like, hey, you're not an expert. Shut, shut up. Like, don't actually talk about those things. Yeah. But then I think like for me even, and I know Kara had mentioned it, like I'm not an expert. Who am I? Who am I? And then I've started to realize who am I is the clearest voice of shame. Shame. Mm. Yeah. Like, who am I to say that? I think Brene yeah. talks about like, Shame says, um, who do you think you are? Who do I, who do I think I am? Mm-hmm. That's the voice of shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, will you say that again? You don't have to be an expert to what be known I, in this. What did I say? What you said? <laughs> what I don't have to be an expert to be known I in re- this. I never said it quite like that. Um, yeah. 
I don't, so I don't have to be an expert, uh, to, to, to do this and to yeah. be known in doing this. And I guess what I mean is I always thought because not only did I see people who had public professions, I would also see people who had the big fall, mm. whether it was a mega church pastor right. or a political mm-hmm. leader or a celebrity that crashed. Mm-hmm. And often if it was someone with a platform trying to do good in the world, they got just hammered for yeah. delivering a message that wasn't authentic to the what was happening in their life. And I was just like, I never want to be that. Mm. And I didn't have a lot of uh, evidence to support because I was working often with people who were on the back end of having dealt with the the crisis side of that, that you could do both. Mm. And so I think that's probably what kept me safe for a while was, and honestly, and I know I'm pivoting into something else that you may or may not ask about, but it's what kept me playing it safe relationally too, mm. because I also had a front row seat and what I felt like we were part of innovating a, a really effective model for dealing with people or for working with people dealing with challenges in their marriage and relationships. And I watched that yeah. and I developed significant grace on how difficult it is to navigate marriage and relationships. But I also was downloading this little, these little tidbits of information that kept me from taking a risk Mm. and because I would, my goal was to find my life partner to get married and have kids. And yet I was seeing so many examples of how hard it was that I thought, man, I'm going to screw that up for sure. And it took a long time for me to be able to realize I don't have to do that perfect either to do it well. Mm. That's awesome. I was going to ask like, is there, cause to take that risk and to take that leap, was there some sort of healing that you experienced that correlated with the being willing to actually take that risk and to feel safe enough to step into that vulnerability. I don't know if there was an actual moment or if this was a gradual, subtle kind of transition that happened. It wasn't a, a flash of, of lightning in terms of a distinct moment, but it, I would say it was compounded over time. Of I'd, I have a, a belief that if I have a stuck pattern in my life, then at least it's worked this way for me. I will, I will work on that over time mm-hmm. and be patient mm-hmm. with it. Absolutely. And I, now I can get hyper-focused on it because I know the tools, but I've had a hard time sometimes being like, be patient, be patient. Yeah. So yeah. for an example, uh, I mean, I have a group of men that I gather with um, in the spring every when year. When can I come? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you would be amazing to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. It's actually, you would totally be a fit because it's people who do kind of what we do. Mm-hmm. And people kind of in the helping profession. We've been meeting for 12 years and wow. we get together for three days and just unpack what's going on in our life. And the idea is that we become better leaders and we become better human beings. Yeah. And how do we invest in becoming a better human being? And I had this block. Um, I don't think I've shared about this at least publicly, but I've shared it with him. I hope he's okay with it. I had this block um, and I won't get into the details just in case around something I longed and wanted for in a relationship with my older brother Mm. and because he was my older brother, I was putting an expectation on him that he should be the one to initiate that conversation. Mm. And I just sat back and waited and waited and waited and built resentment and resent. And he didn't even know what I wanted or needed. (laughs) I'd never really clarified it. So it was a vulnerable risk for me to go have that conversation and I'd like to tell you that I just had the insight that I should be the one to initiate it and had the courage to walk out of that room and go do it. No, it took, <laughs> it was five years. Wow. Now I don't, I'm a slow learner. That doesn't take that long for everybody. But, and what I mean by that is I set up that conversation in a group therapeutic context and practiced it once a That's year awesome. for five years before I felt completely clean mm-hmm. about going to have it. In other words, what I mean by completely clean is I could go have it at that point for pure reasons because I wanted to Mm -hmm. and how he responded or didn't respond would not as relevant. Yeah. But it, but yeah, I I remember, and sometimes you need a little nudge too. So after that fifth year of same guys, same conversation, I think this, I picked the same guy to play my brother and we go outside on a break. It was right before lunch. We got us out on a break and he, and I was shooting basketball and this is at our own place. And I was just, we'll do our work there. And he said, um, he said, give me your phone. And I gave him my phone. You can imagine what this is. Oh, no. And, and I'm, I'm not big on the push and pull when it comes to change 
unless you have a long runway and a trusted alliance. Mm-hmm. And I do in this case. And so I don't always advise this with others because it creates compliance. I've got theories around that. Yeah. But in this case, it's what I needed. I was over wow. in, I, I needed practice and safety, but I was also over analytical about mm-hmm. the outcome. And he literally got my phone, searched my brother's name, and hit <laughs> dial and handed it to me. Wow. He said, Tell him you want to have dinner with him. And I was uh. like, Ugh. Wow. <laughs> So bold. So I would, have, I would have said thank you right after I punched him in the nose. <laughs> right? yeah. So it was it was a long warm up, a lot yeah. of stuff, but then it needed a, a little bit of a nudge. Yeah. yeah. I love how you said too, like, um, especially people who are so prone to be hard on themselves, mm-hmm. which I think is so many, uh, how you are willing to be patient when you have a question or you're proposing a question and you're like kind of an edge that you're leaning towards, you're willing to be patient with yourself and work with it gradually over time. I think mm-hmm. that's just so important to hear and to remember because I know as a three or a four wing three, but as my three tendencies really take over, it's like do more, be more. And that performancism goes into my healing mm-hmm. and it completely undermines the real growth that happens in just being patient yeah. and allowing it to evolve in itself. Yeah. We talked this morning a little bit about uh, like on a scale um, patience versus hope mm-hmm. and how they're both necessary, but how patience is just holding without expectation and holding without outcomes in mind. I like that. And I like the idea of, of taking five years to feel clean, to feel clean of expectation and get to a place where you could have that conversation without it being loaded. I think that's, yeah, that's profound. And it wasn't yeah. that we didn't do relationship. It was right. just that, and what I didn't realize is that, uh, and I'm always a proponent and say this a lot at Onside, is that I am a big believer as it relates to the emotional health space of a two degree change is much more effective and sustainable than 180 degree change because over time it goes like this and that's exactly what has happened to me is those little subtle change it's almost like we treat emotional health or emotional fitness different than we do physical fitness and we just assume that once a year we'll sign up for something and go run a marathon Mm. (laughs) as if we're Mm -hmm. in shape for that and I do agree that it can a boot camp is effective and on-site sometimes can be that for some people, mm-hmm. but I would never suggest it as a, a fix or mm-hmm. a, it's, it's just a, a, either a jump start or a mm-hmm. place to come. If you've been doing a year or two's worth of outpatient therapy to integrate, yeah. um, but it needs to be bookended with the real work. Yeah. That's, that's so, so good. good. I have a friend who says, uh, success is a commitment repeated over and over and over. And it's, it's framed my, uh, understanding of healing in a lot of ways where I, I think for so long I I had probably subconsciously this idea that there was an arrival in my healing journey. And now I just consider it a practice like Mm -hmm. every day waking up, committing to ask, how's my heart? How is my heart Mm -hmm. being tender? Like so tender with myself, um, speaking kindly to myself, these little things that become the practice that actually is the two degree turn that gets you way over here Mm -hmm. along, along the journey. Yeah. Yeah. You you could say another way to you could I'm curious about my heart today. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking statement ways. I'm like, curious. Oh. About, yeah, that's yeah, good. That's that really good. Something that doesn't mean I have to know. Yeah. And I got to be right or wrong, or I yeah. can't answer it. But, yeah. Yeah. Like it's it. so good. So a, yeah, go ahead, babe. No, go. you go. Honey. <laughs> I will go. So want to be a therapist real fast, <laughs> right? I'm going to double for you. No, okay. So good. So Miles, you, you are the owner and CEO of Onsite. Can you just Give us a one one Minute. sentence, two sentence blurb of what it is for people who don't know, um, and then I have a follow up question to that. Okay. Yeah. Oh man, I'm the worst at the, this. Um, it's people that come do our program are much better talking about it than me because mm. I'm like terrible at elevator pitches or whatever yeah. you call it. I usually confuse people. <laughs> um, I would call it an emotional emotional wellness retreat center Mm -hmm. where we offer uh, therapeutic intensive workshops, individuals, couples, families, businesses. And then we also have another arm of our business. A lot of people don't know about, which is a longer term residential uh, component for emotional treatment Mm. with a specialty in trauma, depression, anxiety. Mm. So, and uh, consulting arm too. We do some consulting and speaking and stuff like that, but that's our core, the, thing people know us about are those intensive therapeutic workshops. Mm. Amazing. My follow-up question is you get to see hundreds and thousands of people go through this process and through this week intensive milestones is the month, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious for you, what 
what feels like a success when you mm. watch this happen over and over again? What are the stories? What it, What is the experience you have and you see it and you say that is working or that feels like my work in the world matters? We, we were just out on campus earlier, mm. uh, myself and Christy, my colleague, and we had a meeting on horseback, which I love to do, and she, awesome. she really loves to do. Yes. And I know you love horses, too, That was too, a right? huge part of my experience, yeah. yeah. And we were on our way back, and we have a group there now doing a Living Center program, and which is kind of our marquee program, our workshop. And there was a, there was a guy that stopped us. We were after lunch walking on the trail. We got stopped by a few people because horses just do that. It had nothing to do with us. They didn't yeah. care less about us. They were like, what's your horse's name? And... He said, my wife came here three years ago, and she encouraged me to come. I'm sure you hear this a lot, but this was a life-changing experience. Mm -hmm. But the part I want you to hear is what I'm taking away from being in this environment, I will be able to take back into my family mm -hmm. as a father, as a parent, as a leader in my company, mm -hmm. and utilize it for the better of everybody. And now that wasn't very specific, but is exactly what I needed to hear to answer the question that I hope I can be clear about is it's, it's not, and I know this is not what most people want to hear because what typically sells books or podcasts or TVs or movies is a formula. Mm -hmm. It's like, here's a six part formula mm -hmm. of how to tell a great story or here are the three steps to personal growth. That's probably why I'm late to the game and finishing a book because I just, I, I know what I've seen. I've had a front row seat to see what change looks like and it's messy and it's not mm. formulaic, yeah. but yet I know our brain consumes a map and we need three steps. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying that they're not important. Mm -hmm. I, I know they're important for certain elements, but I really think change happens as is as a lifestyle is mm. when you sit in this overly curated, safe experience to where you feel seen deeper, known deeper and heard deeper than you ever had in your life. Mm. And that would be how I would describe connection. But mm. ultimately, when you can tell when somebody is lit up having felt truly connected to who they are for maybe the first time. And in this case, this gentleman was in, I'm guessing, in his 60s maybe. Wow. And that was a beautiful thing to see the light in his eyes. And it wasn't like he didn't come with me and say, I learned these three things and this is what I'm going to do with them. Don't get me wrong. We have a lot of the, here are the things, yeah. here's the, you know, here's the curriculum. We've got a curriculum, but I think the magic happens in the middle. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, we book in the curriculum, but it's this shift of how human beings show up for one another that changes people from the inside out. Mm. That's beautiful. Mm. Hey guys, Kara here. I hope you are loving today's episode. I just wanted to take a quick minute to tell you that today's episode is brought to you by Connect Dinners. So when I moved to LA about seven years ago, I started a dinner party company with the intention of creating safe spaces for people to connect around the table. And I'm so pumped to tell you that Caleb and I have launched a new dinner series called Connect Dinners this year in 2020. Connect Dinners are invite-only curated dinner parties for 20 strangers that happen in Los Angeles. They are beautiful farm-to-table family-style meals along with delicious organic biodynamic wines from Dry Farm Wines. And they are so much fun. We really believe that when we create spaces for connection, you're able to connect yourself connect to other people and ultimately connect to the greater whole, which allows you to live a more fulfilled life, which we love. So if you're curious about Connect Dinners, just go to connectdinners.com to find Do you find that with all the people that come through that you can look back and and look at all the different races and demographics and people who come through and say there's one common thread that connects them all, regardless of so many different stories? Uh, backgrounds, relationships, but there's this one common theme that regardless of who you are, it connects everyone. This is not um, a revelation. I'm not the first to say it, but I've certainly seen it, seen it as a common theme is that pain is universal. Mm. And I see that so clearly. And it, as you just said, it matters not your background, your socioeconomic status, your life experience from people who've experienced overt acute 
traumatic circumstances to people who have just dealt with a little societal stress. Mm. Pain is universal. Pain is pain is pain. And when you get people in the same room, we all have it, but we also have a huge ability mm-hmm. uh, to empathize. Mm. And ultimately, that changes people from the inside out too, is when it's hard to sit in a circle full of people who are being real and honest about their stories and not walk out more empathetic towards yourself and other people. Yeah. And that's ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not, it's really just human school mm. is what it is. It teaches us how to be more humane to ourselves and other yeah. people. And that's something I've seen. I've not seen anybody yet that couldn't benefit from that, if that yeah. makes sense. No, it yeah. definitely does. That's so good. Um, Miles, so you're married. Yeah. How long? Gosh, well, I'm going to botch this because um, <laughs> Sorry, Vanessa. Vanessa, Vanessa will tell you as will, will Christy, who's in here with us too, that I am the worst with timelines. I cannot <laughs> think in timelines. Like years all run together for me. Mm. But it's been a short amount of time. I know it's been under five years. I want to say four years. Okay. Okay. Um, a lot of people uh, th- think we've been married a long time, and mm. we, we haven't. Mm. But uh, uh, I know when we were uh, at our engagement party, mm. um, pe- well-intended buddies were saying, it's about time. Mm. And... And for them, it helped me clarify when I could just say it, it's not about time. It was the right time. Yeah. The right time. Yeah. yeah. And and I really f- feel that. I, I think I, it's been interesting to assess that in the last two years was we've got two young kids. We've got mm. a two and a half year old and an eight month old who are amazing. So they may be up from their naps. And I hope you get to meet yes, them before we leave. I love that. Like, that's my favorite thing to do, Chrissy. I obnoxiously want people to meet my kids. Yes, <laughs> please. Because like, we, we're in my home office now. And when I leave here with anybody whether i know them or don't know them at all i'm like would you mind stopping in the house yeah <laughs> want some water or anything you're I like really, i made this yeah. i oh, made this look kid at, look at this up. <laughs> look at what look i did um, but we uh i think the the i shared a little bit earlier about why i think i waited mm-hmm. uh, but it was beautiful to, and divine timing because yeah. i think it, i had some opportunity you know there were some opportunities earlier just in relationships that the almost relationships mm-hmm. and I don't think it would have led me to the beautiful thing that we've created and have together now. Did you yeah. know that she was the one? Did you know that you know? No, but she did. Mm. She did. And I credit her with having more in clear instincts anyway. Mm. And women in general just have higher EQ mm-hmm. and more emotional ones. So I we have to work a lot harder at it. Since the how's your heart question, yeah. they're, they're over there like, okay, we already know that. We've been it's talking about our heart since yeah, we yeah. were three years old. Um, but... <laughs> She she said she knew pretty quickly. Um, mm. I had an inkling right away that she was different. I can say that. Uh, but I didn't know or really a- allow myself to uh, the permission to say those words until I was probably two years into it. Mm. Uh, what what has marriage like really mirrored back to you that you might not have experienced outside of a marriage or that depth of a relationship? You heard me say earlier that now that, and I don't mean to imply that I'm that public. I mean, I'm still um, doing what I do and can do it relatively low-key compared to a lot of friends. But I, I shared that it was challenging the more public I've become to integrate the message that I'm saying with marriage. Mm. Uh, talking about it in theory and actually being in it are two totally different things. Yeah. And so I've really gotten to put into practice all of the relational skills I ever dreamed of. Parenting edged that up even mm-hmm. more. because. Yeah. I would think I've got a pretty good, on paper, a pretty good resume for making a good husband, mm. a good partner. And because of just, I know a lot about attachment theory and my own story. I'm going done. straight for your hair. I'll, oh, <laughs> thanks, man. I didn't even think about that. I'll marry you for your hair. <laughs> I'll take that one. Um, no, I, uh, meaning just because of the work that I've done and the work that I do, you would think, okay. Yeah, the but language that, is there. But man, that does not translate into putting it into action. Right. And I think that's been the biggest challenge is actually putting into practice, not when we're at our best, when we're at our best, we both operate, I think at a beautifully high level. And that's where the work shines. And I'm proud of the work we've both done together and we'll continue to do together. Mm. It's when we're stressed Mm -hmm. and we're sleep deprived and are worse, you know, one of us is under the weather that it becomes increased. All the tools go out the window and you're in survival. Mm. And it feels like marriage feels like somebody 
put this big oak tree in the middle of your house. And when you wake up in the morning, you're trying to look around it to see what your life looks like. <laughs> it's this big thing. And I hope I'm not scaring you guys, but it's, 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 <laughs> you know, do this talking about the daunting side of it. Yeah. It's the most, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced in my life. So mm. I wouldn't trade a second yeah. of it, but people often don't tell you right away the difficulty of it. Mm. And it, it's beautifully difficult. And I think going into that, I just, I would have rather had eyes wide open and known, um, cause we traditional premarital is interesting. Mm. I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, but I think it's necessary for some people and I shouldn't pick on it cause it's worked for a lot of people, but to me it keeps things pretty surface mm. with the advice. And I think it's much deeper than that. So I just wanted to know the whole picture. Oh, yeah. heck yeah. This is messy. It's challenging, it's difficult, and it'll be the best thing you've ever done in your life. Yeah. That's so good. You better show up, babe. I know, you too, honey. <laughs> Have you found that you maybe this do. is, I mean, you're way more trained, um, but a lot of what you've talked about, holding space for people and so on, and um, how necessary it is. Have you found it more challenging to go into the, the context for a relationship with your wife and hold space for her? Because you're going to go to sleep next to her, and you're going to wake up next to her. Like, I, you hold space for me, and I'm going to leave your life. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm out of your life and I'm going to go back to L.A. Maybe we won't hang out again. But your wife's not going anywhere. And whenever she's going through something, I feel like something that I've had to do with you. And I've because I've always been one. And I'll be honest with you, like back just even in past relationships, it's like, no, you living in the chaos is going to affect me mm. when I was r really unhealed and driven by shame in my life to do more and to be more in my life. It'd be like you need to clean up your shit because you're going to affect me now. So I'm not going to have time to hold space for you. Let me go ahead and give you the solution. I was a real, real, real gym to be around. <laughs> so it was like, and I would never communicate it like this, but like, Oh, that's what you're going through. Well, you should do this, this, and this because mm -hmm. we need to get you out of this space because it's actually affecting me from moving forward. Your mess is getting on my, me. your mess is getting on me and yeah. it's slowing me down. Uh, that was very unhealed Caleb. And I could never have met Kara until I feel like, you know, this, I, I've done that work to where I'm like, oh no, this is like, I want to get into this mess with you. Like we're not arriving anywhere. This is present. This is what I want. This is what's coming up. Like, let's dive into it together. But I had feel like, even when we got engaged, I'm like, oh, this isn't just your, this is our mess now. Mm -hmm. Like, and holding space for Kara feels a lot different than just holding space for somebody that's coming into my life momentarily. I didn't know if there was an adjustment there with you. If that, yeah. The... I think, because this is what happened to me, and I, I see this happen a lot, is that if you've got some innate and natural ability that you that has come to the surface, because I think the fact that you're good at holding space for people and now just hearing a little bit more about what you do mm -hmm. and the people you hold space for professionally tells me that it's innately and divinely in you. Mm -hmm. um, just needed to clear a few little clutter for that gift to surface. That gift, I believe, will carry over beautifully into this partnership Thank and you. union probably already had yeah, he's the best it, at yeah, holding space yeah, yeah. but even yeah. with her it's like yeah. i remember when our first conversations she she we were having conversations around i've carried so much shame around my sexuality and growing up in evangelical christianity and just feeling like my body is bad um and just natural responses of the body is bad totally and just feeling so much shame around yeah, me that too. and I remember having a conversation actually around sex with Kara. We're just processing sex and what we believe about it and so on and so forth. And it's just shame just hit me. Yep. It's like even like talking about sex still makes me want to cringe a little bit. And there's that kind of the remnants of it. And I remember her looking at me and I didn't tell her, uh, but uh, clearly my emotional like disposition changed, changed, my body changed. Yeah. And she was like, are you feeling shame right now? Mm. And I was like, I, I am. And it was like, honestly, the one of the first mm. times that I had felt safe enough to admit wow. that I was feeling shame around this. And she just sat with it. And then she just starts like, I don't want to blow in the mic. But she started <laughs> blowing. She's like, shame has no place here. <laughs> and then we were it. able to engage in this beautiful conversation. And I allowed her to see a part of me that I don't feel like, I don't know if anybody has ever seen. Uh, just because I never felt, re you know, safe enough because mm. really... I mean, I'm a lot to handle. I'm not going to lie. Like, I come with a lot. And, you know, it takes somebody that's done some considerably amount of work in their life to hold space for that. And, yeah, so going back, she's held space so beautifully for me that it's allowed me to see parts of my heart that I've yet to have been able to access. So it's allowing me to experience life from this new place of uh, presence, a new place of depths from connection to myself that I have yet to been able to access. Mm -hmm. So 
That's beautiful. And, and we, I will say that it, when Vanessa, it, so you asked the question initially, mm-hmm. what's it like versus strangers? Mm-hmm. And just holding space for your Or acquaintances your versus spouse. Way easier for me sure. with strangers and Definitely. acquaintances. A lot of practice, lower stakes, not as much intimacy. I'm not as likely to get hooked in my shame story. Mm-hmm. Where the stakes get high is, and Vanessa, I think, historically, and I think she'd still say this, would, would say that was one of my gifts in our relationship in marriage was my ability to be patient with her, hold space. Mm. However, she, after our first child, she had a tough several months up to a year uh, with some postpartum stuff mm. that she's, she's talked about publicly. But I'll, that's her story to share, so I won't share more than that. But um, it was interesting, my response. That was where you think, or one might think, that my best would show up there. Mm. And I, often my worst showed up. Mm. I lost some of my best gifting. My patience went out. Mm. Um, I was tired because I ended up having to step into a fully different in a role, uh, yeah. meaning it's different in supporting somebody when they're having a rough day Mm -hmm. versus when they're having an extended period of rough time. Mm -hmm. And yet we're trying to partner on this, this thing that we don't know what the heck we're doing Mm -hmm. with this new person in our life. So it'll be in. So as I look back year one, I didn't show up as my best self. And I was, I had made a lot of amends to her. We did some good work around it. I just wasn't proud of how I was and the way it's now, when I say I wasn't proud of it, um, Thankfully, it didn't turn into anything that felt abusive or anything like that because it could be so easily verbally yeah. to go mm-hmm. there. We all hurt each other in relationship. Right. Uh, but it just, for me, it became, I just disconnected mm. from her mm-hmm. more than I'm proud of. It wasn't continuous, but it was enough that it was prevalent in our relationship. And it made me ask deep questions about me. Yeah. It's like, what happened? Where are my tools? Was there Where? like a level of anger towards yourself? Yeah, well... Um, or just more curiosity, like what the hell happened? No, no, I think anger, anger fits. Mm. Yeah. I think I was frustrated and it evolved into an anger about how, what is, because I do constantly assess myself and how I'm showing up. And I was like, what is the deal? You know, you're not as present as you used to be. You're not as patient as you used to be. You're not as connected to her as you used to be, all those things. And I think it was a, the difference was, when I'm working with somebody or something or when I'm in a relationship with somebody or something where I can somewhat predict the outcome, mm. um, because I've seen a lot of people recover from yeah. difficult circumstances, then that's a little easier to manage and hold some optimism and hope. Mm-hmm. But when you're in something that feels new and you're not sure of the outcome, it's like, uh Oh, yeah. and then it brought up all my old stuff. And so, but I will say it was the tools. It was a rough time in our, in our marriage, but it was the tools that regrounded us. And both of us looked at each other at the same time and recognized, um, it wasn't that we needed to do work. It's that we weren't taking advantage of something we both very much deserve, Mm -hmm. which is we're in a season of difficulty. Mm -hmm. I mean, the stress is high and we're not enjoying this like we should be. So let's go do something about it. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to, and quickly engaged in to what we know is helpful for us, Mm -hmm. which is a couples therapy and, got back on the same page and started to rebuild. But that was a long, probably more info than you wanted. But I just wanted to be completely honest about that answer. Thank you. Good. Hmm. Um, Little segue here. I I had a friend who recently went to onsite and she came back and we were debriefing her time and it was so special. And one of her, um, her comments really struck me. She said, she's Jewish. And she said, we were at a group of people and she goes, you guys, they were all Christians, <laughs> but they were the people in life who you just want to be around and were the most non-judgmental humans I've ever met. Oh wow! And it was it was really really cool to hear. Um, and I'm really curious. I know onsite is not explicitly faith based, correct? Correct. Um, but I do think that you hold such a safe space for spirituality to exist mm-hmm. in all different forms. And I'm really curious your 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 mantra on that and how you, how you do that. 
thank you for noticing that and for sharing the feedback mm -hmm. from your friend. That means the world to me because we, I would say, I will say we spend as much time um, curating spiritual and psychological safety or working on how we get better at that or fix it when we mess it up mm. than we do any clinical modality we might utilize in people's change process. Mm. And I used to not do that. I used to be so hyper-focused on delivering a premium clinical product or change technology, if you want to take the clinical part of it, just like really be good at what we give people. And I left out some important things, spiritual safety, psychological safety, really good hospitality, which can wrap people up in both of those. And so we, we now probably spend an equal amount of time, probably 50% on our content and what we hope to deliver in our expertise and 50% on the environment mm, and building so safety good. for that. So I, I, I would say we're, I usually don't say we're faith based. I say we're faith inclusive mm. or faith neutral, uh, meaning we don't exclude people for what they do and don't believe, but we certainly believe that spirituality is an, incre an incredibly important element mm. in the healing process, but just try to make sure that everybody's invited um, as, and I loved that we had such a diverse group of, uh, people for so long. I will say the faith-based community, which ironically, that's where I was, grew up and it's mm -hmm. where I am now, I would say faith-based Christian specifically, uh, went away from it for quite some time, but have kind of gotten resettled in, in, in that. However, pretty open worldview mm -hmm. and love, have a lot of friends with different faith beliefs and some with none at all and completely comfortable in that. However, I used to want to reach the faith community, the Christian community mm. with our offering because we had this really um, secular offering that I thought was so good. And I thought, man, the, you know, it was <laughs> getting on my past. Man, the Christian community could really <laughs> use this. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I remember we created programs early on because I thought it was just a language gap because I would hear the Christian community would say to me, do you, is it faith-based? Mm. Well, what does that mean? I've learned yeah. that means something different to everybody. Right. Um, and then they would say, the ones that would really drill down would say, is it biblically, uh, how do you say biblically it? Biblically grounded. Something biblically like sound. that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Sound, yeah. And I would always be, like, had to be honest about it and say, you know, it's, that's not our expertise. You yeah. know, our expertise is this, and this is what we teach. Yes, um, we are sacrificing lambs. We are, yeah. <laughs> mean, we, say we have altars. Like, what are you talking so, about? We have altars. High priest comes in every night. So. Yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't try to study a lot of that. We try to live it, but, yeah. um, but we, uh, anyway, we, uh, I, I remember, the paradigm shifter for me because we were trying to, I was trying to build bridges into the faith in the Christian community. I was like, we're not talking their language. So let's create a new program. That's a Christian program that will make it easier. For, and it just ended up being a watered down version of what we already offer. Mm. Did it, did it catch traction? No, no, mm -mm. no. After a season two, because I don't think it was really of genuine intent. Mm. I think it was me. Well, it was, wasn't all of genuine intent. There was some genuine intent in there, but there was also a part of me that really wanted my old community and my family particularly Absolutely. to notice what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. And I just thought, man, if I could support that community, then mm -hmm. they'll really feel valid and good. About I also feel, though, that as much as it might be that, as somebody that grew up evangelical, and if you would have given me that back then, I would have been like, no, taking that is is not demonstrating faith. Mm -hmm. So, like... God, Jesus did everything for me. I just need to have more faith in Jesus, not yep. this system, yep. right? And so I could see a lot mm -hmm. of people having that process too. I know that's what I think that might be my first response. Like, oh no, this isn't faith. This is like, sure, it's grounded, but I need mm -hmm. to have faith in Jesus, not a system. Yep. Yeah. Well, I ended up getting a call from a, uh, a mega church pastor that had a real public um, fall mm -hmm. and called me anonymously. It was all over the media news and said, I have a question. Are you faith-based? And I had, I, I rem that question used to put me on my heels immediately because yeah. I was like, how do I answer that where you'll be okay with trusting our resource? And finally I'd gotten more comfortable and seasoned over the time where I just was like, no, you know, yeah. we're, we're faith inclusive, faith neutral. And I would yeah. talk about what I just shared with you. And he said, he took a deep breath. I'll never forget the exhale. And he said, thank God I'm coming. <laughs> I yes. knew that was coming. I knew that's what the answer was going to be. Oh, and it was so faith based got me to this fall and I need something different right now. Well, he was scared. Yeah. I couldn't take his yeah. mask off. And yeah. so, and so then good. when he got there and realized that uh, I was actually was a believer in his particular faith, that was just a bonus, but it wasn't right. what made it safe for him to be there. But I will say back to your question. Now that we 
thankfully, the more we got connected to who we are and stayed true to what we believe we offer the world. Mm -hmm. And I I stopped kind of hiding behind what I was scared to talk about Mm -hmm. in terms of my faith and, but yet still making space for everyone else. Suddenly the Christian community is like, we're a big resource for them. And so it, I will say it's gotten a little more challenging. We do see it more often now where you'll have one person of another faith. Mm. We also have, I mean, the Jewish community use our resource a lot too. Mm. So that's an exception. However, I'm hearing it more where like I was one person in a room with everybody that shared the same belief system. Mm. And so it used to be easier when it was like a third or half and half. But I'm so glad to hear that Mm. even though that was the case, she still felt really safe. Yeah. yeah. So thank you for that. Powerful. Yeah. Um, One last question. We'll wrap this up. To make it kind of practical, uh, I know for my life and I know for so many other people, like uh, letting go of expectations or letting go of outcomes or letting go is just whatever it might be is such a, a big part of healing, right? And stepping into this place of radical acceptance, I would say, um, you know, just grieving this life that's never going to be. And I have found that, you know, so many interactions that I've had with people is just they cling on to this idea of what life should look like. They should cling on to this idea of what life or who they should be in this life or what their life should look like, so on and so forth. And that process uh, process of letting go is just downright scary. Messy. Right? It's messy. It's mm-hmm. scary. Um, what do you say, and I know it's a big question, but what do you say to somebody that knows they need to let go, but they are so damn scared to let go so that they can actually create the space to step into the new? Hmm. I would I would likely have some follow-up if if that was what they were telling me, if I ha- if I feel incredibly scared of letting go, uh, then I would say there is a there are some myths about letting go, and that often gets coupled with the idea of forgiveness, which can be really confusing because mm-hmm. it kind of gets mandated theology through theology, but therapeutically, it's way more complex than that. Yeah. Um, we're seeing that. I know we shared something earlier prior to recording about working with the survivor community with mass shootings and we're finding some really I don't know any other way to say it but just some traumatizing solutions that traditional well-intended I'm sure pastors and counselors probably that aren't trauma-informed have given these folks that they should forgive the perpetrator and it what happened is they did in many cases they did in the courtroom it's Mm. like I forgive you because it's implied that if I don't let go and forgive you, then I'll never get to heaven or never be able to live a good life. And so we, and imagine what we saw that they did that. Where do you think the anger went Mm -hmm. sideways towards everybody around them and themselves? And so suddenly the perpetrator's energy just flipped to the family Mm. and to themselves and it became self-hatred and insecurity. So I'm really careful with that. Let go theory in the forget I do agree there's an element of it that you do need to let go of certain things that don't serve you anymore but I'm really curious about what part of it do you still need to explore how Mm -hmm. is it serving you what's the payoff because I think when people untether with clarity they're more likely to continue a sustained growth process Mm -hmm. and now granted part of the growth process nobody tells you that these are It's kind of like the marriage thing when people don't really tell you that it's hard um, and you still should do it, but it's hard. (laughs) And, but is that a part of a natural part of change is relapse in old Mm. behavior. Mm. And say, I expect, so I get into that second year of marriage where things are suddenly really hard Mm. and we didn't think we would have children that fast. We got pregnant on our honeymoon and, and it suddenly became really hard. Nobody said it's going to be really hard this is normal mm-hmm. and here's how you deal with it. Yeah. It was like, Oh my gosh, it's abnormal, which means there's something wrong, wrong. with our marriage, something yeah. wrong with her, something mm-hmm. wrong with me. What do we do? And it's actually very normal. And I would tell people who are struggling uh, to let go that that's actually really normal. Mm-hmm. And so good. let's take a look at it. Let's explore it. Yeah. See what it, how it's going to benefit you, how it's not serving you. And I'd rather usually people let go fast when dictated that they should and we call that compliance which ends up being the number one form of resistance mm. so good. and so i like inviting people into it versus mandating it if that Absolutely, makes sense yeah. is that another form of spiritual bypassing like just overlooking the problem or like getting past it just through like a 
I forgive them. So I'm, I'm just bypassing the actual pain of it. Yeah. In this case, I think, yes, I think in this case, I was thinking about, um, if I were to think about the stages of change, uh, a, a guide in that process for mm-hmm. someone where unconsciously what we say or what we don't say could be a push or pull yeah. mm-hmm. towards an agenda that we hope that they ultimately land on, but it's mm-hmm. not their agenda. Yeah. It's ours. And, and agenda free change is the most sustainable change yeah. mm-hmm. so I've discovered. It's so good. Yeah. Miles, awesome. it has been so nice to sit with you. We are honestly so honored to just have time with you and we're really grateful to be in your presence. And I, I personally am so impacted by your work in the world. So I'm, I'm so thankful. Thank you. Yeah. Just so you know, we are officially friends. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> I've got the heart of a hero.